Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hello, Octavia. How are you? Hi, Carrie. You sounded so excited to see me. It was really nice. I am excited to see you, hear you maybe. Yeah. I actually see you right now. I can't see you in, with my eyes, but I can see you with my mind. Yes. So, whereas I can't see you with my mind, as we know. As you know. No <laughs> but I am rendered just in text. <laughs> Um, I'm good. I'm good. I am planning a little trip away to the Y Valley in a couple of weeks. And so every spare minute is taken up with um, reading about the magical mysticism of that place and also really just looking into where I can go swimming. Um, (laughs) And there is a place, there's a river. So yeah, that's kind of what's, what's going on for me right now. What about you? Actually, similarly, I'm about to go camping for a week in what will probably be a very rainy, but hopefully atmospheric Scotland. We're we're going to the Highlands and I am not reading about it in the way that you seem to be, which I'm very impressed by, but I could not be more excited to have a break. I just can't wait. Great. It's going to be misty, full of heather. Also, I'm kind of only reading about it because I want to get in touch with the mystical spirits that I know are around in that part of the world. I want to know about them so I can encounter them. Nice. I respect that, as I say. And I, feel like, I feel like there are probably some mystical spirits in Scotland as well. Oh, you bet there are. I'll never know. <laughs> They'll find you, don't worry, yeah. in your tent. They'll come Excellent. and knock in. Oh, that's scary. <laughs> I hope not. But anyway, on to the show. Today, we are really excited to welcome the author Anuk Arud Pragasim to talk about his second novel, A Passage North. This is a beautiful meditative story about Krishan, who must take a train from Colombo to northern Sri Lanka to attend the funeral of his grandmother's caretaker. The relationship between Krishan and his grandmother is a central part of the story and a really wonderful part of the story. And so we thought as a wider theme, we would talk about grandparents in literature. Many of us have significant relationships with our grandparents, but is this reflected in literature and especially Anglo literature? We will be talking about memorable literary grandparents like Grandpa Joe in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and Olive Kittredge, asking what grandparents symbolize in family dynamics and wondering why there seem to be so few grandparents in the books in English that we read. But before we get started, Octavia, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit more about Anuk? I sure do. Anuk Arud Pragasam was born in Colombo and currently lives between Sri Lanka and India. His debut novel, The Story of a Brief Marriage, won the DSC Prize for South Asian Literature and was shortlisted for the Dylan Thomas Prize, as well as the Internationale Literat Prix. He received a doctorate in philosophy from Columbia University in 2019. Also, a quick reminder that we are on Patreon. If you would like extra content and to support the work we do, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash litfriction. And you can listen to our latest extra special bonus mini-sode in which Carrie tells us a little bit more about her job as a literary agent. I do. But for now, stay tuned for our interview with Nook, a more general discussion of grandparents in literature, and finally, our usual book recommendations. So come get intergenerational on literary friction. I approve of that one. Thank you. Anuk Arudpagasam, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. We've asked you to start with a reading. Do you mind setting it up for us? Yeah, of course. So I'm just going to start at the first page, and I'm just going to read the first paragraph, which uh, I think gives a sense of the book and its rhythm. The present, we assume, is eternally before us, one of the few things in life from which we cannot be parted. It overwhelms us in the painful first moments of entry into the world, when it is still too new to be managed or negotiated, remains by our side during childhood and adolescence, in those years before the weight of memory and expectation. And so it is sad and little unsettling to see that we become, as we grow older, much less capable of touching, grazing, or even glimpsing it, that the closest we seem to get to the present are those brief moments we stop to consider the spaces our bodies are occupying, the intimate warmth of the sheets in which we wake, the scratched surface of the window on a train taking us somewhere else, as if the only way we can hold time still is by trying physically to prevent the objects around us from moving. The present, we realize, eludes us more and more as the years go by, showing itself for fleeting moments before losing us in the world's incessant movement, fleeing the second we look away and leaving scarcely a trace of its passing, or this at least is how it usually seems in retrospect, 
when in the next brief moment of consciousness, the next occasion we are able to hold things still, we realize how much time has passed since we were last aware of ourselves, when we realize how many days, weeks and months have slipped by without our consent. Events take place, moods ebb and flow, people and situations come and go, but looking back during these rare junctures in which we are, for whatever reason, lifted up from the circular daydream of everyday life, we are slightly surprised to find ourselves in the places we are, as though we were absent while everything was happening, as though we were somewhere else during the time that is usually referred to as our life. Waking up each morning, we follow by circuitous routes the thread of habit, out of our homes, into the world, and back to our beds at night, move unseeingly through familiar paths, one day giving way to another and one week to the next, so that when in the midst of this daydream something happens and the thread is finally cut, when in a moment of strong desire or unexpected loss the rhythms of life are interrupted, we look around and are quietly surprised to see that the world is vaster than we thought, as if we'd been tricked or cheated out of all that time, time that in retrospect appears to have contained nothing of substance, no change and no duration, time that has come and gone but left us somehow untouched. It's such a beautiful opening and so reflective from the start, which I thought was very bold, actually, to begin with a kind of philosophical unraveling of memory and ideas. Did you always know you were going to start that way? I think I did because, well, not necessarily with this particular passage, but I think I did know that I wanted to start with something that uh, I think let the reader know, let myself as the writer know that this is what this book is about, or rather that this is the this is the kind of understanding that the book is seeking, if that makes sense. That does make sense. And, you know, speaking of the understanding that, that the book is seeking, uh, the, the, the novel itself is, is centered around a journey that the narrator, Krishan, takes on a train from Colombo in Sri Lanka to a village up north for the funeral of his grandmother's former caretaker, Rani. How did that set up come to you? How did you decide that that was going to be the kind of central movement of this novel? Well, I think it has to do with, I mean, it has to do with a couple of things. But on the one hand, I tend to, to view the writing projects that I'm that I'm doing now as, as like long apprenticeships, as ways for me to kind of learn the craft or to learn about literature. I, I, I you know, I didn't study uh, writing and I didn't study literature, I think, from like since after grade nine. So I, I, I see myself as very much learning about what, what is possible in, in literature and what I am capable of in literature and what I, I, I like to do in literature as I, as I write. So one of the things that I wanted to do with this book was to see how much, how much of a book I could write without certain kinds of, um, I guess, uh, traditional structures. I had actually initially wanted to write the book uh, with the main character just in, inside a room it was kind of based on this uh, this Thomas Bernard novel, um, Extinction. I don't know if you've read it, but it, no. it's actually it's quite a difficult book to read. <laughs> but it, but it, it it so it's divided into two parts. The first is called the Telegram, and it's about it's about the main character receiving a telegram informing him that his family has died. He's in his room, I think, in Rome, and he's just uh, going up and down the room thinking about the telegram. And the, the second part is basically him in his room in this mansion in the countryside of Austria where his house is and where the funeral is taking place. And he's looking at the funeral proceedings taking place downstairs from his room. And I was really impressed with the kind of uh, sustained engagement with a single, with a single uh, consciousness in a contained space. The idea that what happens to thought when there's no stimulus or, or there's no novel stimulus from the outside world to change its course or direct it in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happens if you just let it, uh, let its logic, let the logic of your mind at a moment unfold? And so I, this is what I was trying to do actually, and it turned out to be, <laughs> it turned out to be <laughs> impossible for me at least. I couldn't do it in a bearable way. I think for any of my friends to read, and <laughs> and and so I. I, I began to feel that some sense of movement was was necessary, and I mean the whole the whole novel changed. I think as it was written initially, it was about a relationship between a young man and his grandmother, and it began to expand in various ways to incorporate all of the different elements that it has that it has now. 
I think you really get a sense of that that influence though in the style because it's you write in these really very long meandering sense sentences that read totally effortlessly but actually often invoke quite complex syntax and condense lots of different information and ideas into a single phrase which i found an incredibly meditative reading experience but i was aware that that must have taken a lot of skill on your part and i wondered if that style of expression came naturally or if it was very considered for you and how you got there yeah i, I guess it is influenced by i mean I, I mean i guess i've read thomas bernard uh, and so i guess it is influenced in some way by his prose but i mean it's very different in its tone because uh, thomas bernard is very um his prose is full of angst and and paranoia and claustrophobia and this is written in a entirely different mood so it definitely was something that it it wasn't something that i had to cultivate it came naturally to me but it was it came over time it was like it had to do with how do i say a period is a very it's a very strong break and i find that if i'm thinking in terms of breaking a paragraph or bo- a block of prose into paragraphs and then into sentences um and then into sub clauses i find that some of those breaks specifically the full stop um the period and the paragraph break are very strong and that if i'm thinking of the prose as in some way in some kind of as some kind of aesthetically mediated representation of a of a person's consciousness that that kind of break the kind of break that you get at a full stop or a paragraph stop really marks transitions in thought that would involve uh, oftentimes stimuli from the outside world something passing your your um field of vision or a voice from around the corner or the the buzz of your phone in your pocket and if we're dealing with a character that is not being disturbed by the physical environment in that way of where if we've given the character space to be undisturbed that there would be less interruptions of this kind so i so i was very careful i think with um not careful but i didn't i, di- I didn't use full stops i think or paragraph breaks as much as they are often used because this was the kind of situation that i wanted to have a character in undisturbed yeah it makes so much sense and it made me think when i was reading it that it, it gives a, your your writing quite a timeless quality i feel like a lot of contemporary fiction is very invested in the full stop and the paragraph break and like the isolated dialogue and all of that when i when i'm envisaging the way a lot of contemporary fiction at least is written i'm seeing you know paragraphs separated from one another and spiky interruptions i suppose as you as you've just described it and it yeah it really makes your work stand out for me and i i loved it it felt kind of old fashioned in a way that i was very like pleased to encounter if that makes sense it it did it sounded old fashioned yeah i mean it it does make sense it sounded old fashioned but did it also feel conservative no no not at all no it didn't and why was conservative. that i think because well what you're doing with the character Krishan who's the narrator whose mind we're kind of inside is first of all he didn't strike me as a conservative character but we're really learning about how he is experiencing the world around him and his feelings and none of that is is the territory for conservative thought you know if you get deep into what desire feels like for example which is something that Carrie and I both really responded to in this in this book you're kind of imaginings of of what desire actually feels like and you you consistently draw this parallel between the interruption of desire and the interruption of loss which comes up in the passage you just read for us so you know because you're in that territory none of it feels conservative at all but i feel like the as carry said the kind of boldness to write in that deeply internal way feels Yeah, just it feels slightly old fashioned in a way that I enjoy. I mean it as a compliment. I don't yeah, mean it. Yeah, yeah. A, no, no, no. I no, no, I no, I sense yeah. that. I sense that. Yeah, I was just curious. It was, you know, at the same time, I guess, you know, writing long sentences also often, I mean, it can I don't know, it can seem like a kind of 
like look at me and look at how clever i am kind of gesture <laughs> and it was also like very important that uh that the sentences be readable just because i guess yeah i guess a lot of people who uh who are interested in my writing or like a lot of diasporic tamil people for example who in some way after my first book i realized are in, are an audience an important audience for me are not necessarily people who who read a lot of literary fiction yeah and you know so for example that you know maybe so that somebody like my father could read it who doesn't read at all in english uh, who yeah who wasn't yeah. able to finish my first book for example yeah i found it very readable so i think you achieved that um and i wanted to ask you a little bit more about memory but because of course we're in this character's mind so a lot of what we're doing is really looking back to the past and i think you very cleverly were thinking through krishan's memories um especially uh, this intense relationship he had with another woman but about his relationship with his grandmother and his mother but it's also really about cultural memory as well you know his own reckoning with the aftermath of the civil war he he's tamil um he wasn't really involved in the war he was away studying and he feels very guilty that he's he's been spared um and really hungry to kind of understand what happened and in a sense remember um what happened because at one point i think you even talk about people being erased um in this war so i wonder if you could talk a little bit about that why you wanted krishan especially to be the kind of vessel for thinking through these larger cultural memories and and about how we might remember things that's a really it's a really good question i think yeah because krishan he doesn't actually experience anything firsthand in this novel he he's he's hardly ever in the environment or the the situation the, the physical environment that he's in he's 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 somewhere else usually his thoughts are elsewhere and even the things that he he witnesses he's he's very much a witness rather than a participant like the like the funeral for example and even the call that he gets about rani is not um meant for him it's meant for his mother and i think that had to do with uh where i was personally in in relationship to the war and how i had been processing it through my writing because my first novel imagines two characters in the middle of the violence at the end of the war when uh during a period in which tens of thousands of people being killed and it was a kind of attempt to and i think a self-conscious attempt to interpret i guess the life of of a person in that situation by somebody who was far away from that situation and i didn't actually really want to write about violence anymore and i didn't want to um to think about that violence because it was a very heavy violence and it was not after a certain point it was not a fruitful uh, uh thing to engage with i decided and so i'd initially i had not planned to even write write about the void kind of kept coming up in in certain ways and i realized that it it was in fact supposed to be the subject of the novel that i was writing despite my efforts to avoid the subject and so i wanted to write not about imagining what participating in such a situation would be like but something closer to my own experience in writing my first novel which was witnessing from afar what was happening uh what it means to be a spectator and powerless and that sense of powerlessness was 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 very important to me because for people like me who were watching the genocide take place in 2008 and 2009 people like me tamils like me who were outside the war zone all you could do is watch and even the even the even the videos and the pictures that you saw they were obviously uh, only making their way to you weeks weeks months after the, the the thing that had been had been captured had taken place so we were watching a uh, death take place from from afar and after the fact and there was a there's a real strength sense of agencylessness and i wanted to and i wanted to capture this sense of of lack of agency and uh for that um i think i mean i think that also had has to do with why everything is in the past because 
of course the past is 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 that which one has no agency over except uh, if one is inclined to reconstruct it which i guess people do but it's difficult to reconstruct certain things uh, certain certain things that mark themselves on you so strongly and so i mean there are other ways of being agencyless i mean tamil people for example still lack agency in various ways but the kind of metaphysical impossibility of of altering what happens what happened in the past was i think part of the kind of lack of agency that i wanted to capture i wonder if that also comes in in one of the central relationships in the novel which is between krishan and his grandmother apama um because i found those passages so moving the detail with which you observe the deterioration that comes at you know the end of life at the late stage of life and i felt krishan's sense of powerlessness <laughs> over what's happening to his grandmother and i think often when you know a book like this which takes very intimate familial relationships as its focus in some ways and then obviously into those relationships come the echoes of the wider political situation because that's what life is like um but i just listening to you speak then i was thinking was that a, was that a conscious parallel or was it something that just emerged in the writing that that this powerlessness comes with his grandmother's sort of loss of self as well i i don't i don't know if it was conscious but i i i i suppose i sensed some some resonance between the two um and and that was part of why the two uh, were written together in this way i guess i was interested in kind of yeah i was interested in the specific powerlessness of of aging i mean it's it's such a vivid form of of losing power or lose, losing touch with the world as your your motor abilities deteriorate your vision and your hearing deteriorates your ability to speak deteriorates you it's as if you're literally receding from the world and the book is kind of about it, it is about people who who desire things and are unable to um kind of pursue them for various for various reasons and and for for apama it's this it's this i mean i think for me she 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 contrasted with uh, krishan and and rani and anjum the other characters in the novel because what she wants you sense you get this sense that if she was participating in the world if she if she was if she, if her body was was functioning as it used to and her senses her life may not have indeed in fact been that 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 appealing it 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 was you know it was a small life uh, and a domestic life uh, one without many pleasures uh, or gratifications and so you get, you get this sense that that what this woman is pining for really is simply is simply the world she simply wants to be there she simply wants to engage with it it doesn't matter what the nature of that world is like or or, or how 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 much it means to it's the world that she's missing and i and i thought that 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 contrasted in a way with krishan and rani and anjum all of whom want very specific versions of the world what they want is is the is a specific configuration of the world she's a wonderful character and i also loved the relationship between krishan and his grandmother which it's not a relationship you often see explored very deeply in fiction um the relationship between um grandparents and their grandchildren so i wonder if you could talk a little bit about that what what made you want to explore that kind of relationship and and what does that relationship mean to you as as a person uh, and as a writer i have a very close relationship to my grandmother and this was very much um part of me thinking through my relationship with my grandmother i mean she's i'm her favorite grandson and so <laughs> and so her, her favorite that? grandchild she tells me all the time <laughs> and um for her pride i'm required to participate in her life in very in very direct ways even when i'm not in sri lanka and so i was so we have a very close relationship and i was i was wanting to and I, and so these i mean a lot of these these thoughts about aging and these kinds of relationships came naturally to me and i think if they are rare in contemporary english language fiction in contemporary i guess american and british fiction it's because from my time living in the us my sense is that these are very age segregated societies the multiple generations very rarely um, or increasingly rarely uh, live together in the same household 
and so um i don't know i mean for i i mean most growing up most of my friends all unless their grandparents had passed away they were all in very close contact with at least so at least not just people of their parents generation but people of the generation above and um one gets a sense of what what it means to age and what it's like to be old and what one needs to look what one can look forward to and what one also um needs to fear about about that one has a sense at a at a very young age i mean it, it old age seems to me an organic part of uh, of of life in a way that i don't necessarily feel that it appears to a lot of uh, british and american writers i think you're right i mean i think there's also this the kind of particularly i suppose the american ideal but i think it translates here in the uk as well of kind of rampant individualism it's that your your young adulthood should belong to you and you alone and you can go and become an efficient capitalist machine and you know caregiving is not high on the agenda necessarily and it's it's not the best way to live <laughs> i don't right. think i, I right. mean for me because my my father was much older than my mother so i was caring for him while he was in his 80s and that was my mm. connection to that other generation so i could really relate yeah. to that relationship um and i was so pleased to see it represented in fiction because i do think it's something that uh, i think there's a loss and i think that disconnect between between the elders and the youngers in a community is 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 kind of dangerous actually and i think it, you know in this novel the other character who kind of brings another perspective into Krishan's world is is Rani who is Apama's carer who mm -hmm. is not as old as Apama ob obviously but she's kind of a midpoint between the two characters I wonder if you could talk a bit more about her because she she sort of interrupts the family in an interesting way and, and is part of it but isn't part of it and obviously her death is kind of the catalyst for the journey that the narrative is structured around but what what did rani rani mean to you and and why did you include her in the story i'm not sure i can say uh what rani means to me specifically but i think um i think in in the novel and for for krishan she is a kind of she embodies a certain kind of or her existence in his her presence in his life and the life of his grandmother um embodies a certain kind of contradiction she is somebody who has lost uh, both her sons uh, during the last the last months of the war she is somebody who is uh, deeply traumatized uh, in the medical sense where she she has flashbacks uh, she has night terrors she um uh is unable to stop thinking about her children and reliving uh, uh the moments of their death and she receives electroshock therapy fairly regularly uh to treat her to treat her depression she she is somebody who is marked uh by violence in such a way that she can never lose sight of it it's always there with her and and there are many people like this who who have experienced Uh, the kind of violence that 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 took place in 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 Sri Lanka in 2008 and 2009 there are many people who are branded in in such a way that this violence will always be present and so her presence in Krishan's life is a kind of um it, it embodies a kind of contradiction the contradiction between the violence and and the way in which it disrupts ordinary life and life as usual life as it as we know it as habitual and reliable it interrupts this concept of of ordinary life of life as usual and so there are a lot i mean there are there are these moments of i think uh, in which this contradiction i think comes to the surface for example when in the in the slightly comic section where rani and appama are trying to outshout each other uh, for krishan's <laughs> for krishan's attention and he's mortified because his grandmother wants to tell him about canned fish while rani is telling him the story of her of her child's death this moment it embodies it embodies this kind of contradiction that is always present in krishan it's a kind of physical embodiment of that psychic contradiction uh, the contradiction that anyone feels who has to witness violence of this magnitude from afar taking place 
being inflicted upon one's own community or one's own people uh, and yet nothing in the outside world because one is very far reflecting that reflecting that violence this mm. this strange um jarring of the consciousness i love that answer that you just gave but it was making me think about maybe you could say this about all writers but i i was especially feeling as i was reading you know this novel is is a, is a very um philosophical meditation on death on love on family on violence on legacy and i wonder do you think of yourself as a writer who is particularly interested in going to those deep and universal themes like because it it struck me that this book was kind of getting more to the heart of the matter and was addressing those ideas much more head on than maybe some other novels do. Yeah, I think I think that's I think that's true. And I think it it reflects I mean there's an essayistic mode in this in this novel. I mean also to some degree in my first novel but more developed in this novel where where subjects that the narrative is about or that uh, that are circled around in the more narrative sections of the of the novel become explicit and become a subject of discussion and i think yeah i think that's very much what i'm interested in doing in 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 fiction and it's not that i'm not interested in 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 reading other kinds of fiction but you know i mean there are many reasons that that people read and there are many reasons that people write and you know i have i was thinking about this recently because because I was wondering, I was thinking to myself, like, am I am I an elitist writer? Am I uh, because I'm I'm because I'm I'm interested in, I guess, uh, philosophical, like subjects of philosophical significance that 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 seem like uh, above the I guess run of ordinary life. Is that elitist? Because philosophy is elitist, and because to have the luxury to reflect on these things is elitist and and surely it's the case that there is some elitism involved because I, here I am writing books and thinking about such things and I wouldn't deny that but I think it actually has to do with my childhood relationship to books I grew up in a household that where people didn't read and um where books there were a few books around in English um a few self-help books but reading was something that I we still i mean my my parents and everybody in my my milieu valued books literally worship books or thought of books as subject as 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 kind of as things worthy of great reverence you know never put a book never put a book on the ground they would always say uh, mm-hmm. and yet we wouldn't have books around and and so they were kind of elevated for me books were always something that was uh, above the ordinary or outside the ordinary and something that was worthy of a certain kind of reverence and i think for that reason it's it's also difficult for me to be interested in a book that isn't serious about life that didn't want to put aside petty concerns and when i say i say petty concerns i don't mean the ordinary or the everyday uh, and i don't mean to like diminish those things i just mean you know the bright noises and the surface colors of life i i i'd always been i'd always seen books as something that that went outside outside those distractions well, Anouk, thank you so much um, for coming and talking to us today. The novel is called The Passage North. We both really loved it. It's out with Granta, and uh, you should all read it. Um, thank you so much for, for having me. This episode is sponsored by Picador. Michelle Zahner, also known as the musician Japanese Breakfast, lost her mother when she was 25. Their relationship had been complex, loving and sometimes fraught but something over which they could always bond was heaping delicious plates of food, the Korean food her mother taught her how to cook and eat. Crying in H Mart is Zona's acclaimed memoir about how she reconnected with her identity, her history, and the gifts of taste and language given to her by her mother after her passing, by celebrating the food she grew up with, the food she remembered from her grandmother's apartment in Seoul, and the food that tasted like home. It's a powerful story of growing up mixed race and Asian American, of enduring love and loss, and of forging one's own identity. Crying in H Mart is a New York Times bestseller that has been called 
A Deeply Necessary Gift by Vogue. It will be published by Picador in August. Also, my proof came with a recipe for kimchi fried rice, for which I will be eternally thankful. And it does sound great. I can't wait to read it. Right, we're back to talk about grandparents and literature, which I'm really excited to talk about. Um, Me too. So I wanted to start by asking for you, what are some of the most memorable grandparents in literature and why do you think they are memorable? What do they bring to the narrative? Well, the first one I could think of was the grandmother in Little Red Riding Hood, because <laughs> I think that yep. probably was the first literary grandparent I encountered as a child. Um, but there are some great grandparents in in Roald Dahl's work, of course, the Charlie in the Choc- Chocolate Factory, but also in The Witches. There's kind of a mad grandma. She's a Norwegian octogenarian who smokes cigars and tells stories, and she's a former witch hunter, and she kind of lets her grandson get away with all kinds of things. So in that book the granny is kind of the cool renegade I guess which obviously is an inversion of maybe the kind of cultural trope of the little old lady or the little old man like the meek the meek human and and another one like that is a a comedy novel the Thursday Next Adventures by Jasper Fjord which is a, a series and um there's a character called Granny Next who, due to unspecified crimes in her younger years, has been sentenced to 20 years wearing blue gingham <laughs> and to having to read the 10 most boring books in existence before she's allowed to die. So there she's kind of used as, again, to comic effect, but she's also a bit of a renegade granny. So there's that inversion again. Um, but when I was thinking about grandparents who were not used for comedic effect like that and were kind of taken seriously in the way that Anouk takes that part of life seriously I found it much much harder to think of any one that came to mind was I feel like Jonathan Safran Foa is a writer who brings grandparents in but he does tend to use them a little bit for comedic effect there's a grandfather figure in um, Everything is Illuminated who actually is also a character that brings a lot of emotional depth to the book because of the pain that he suffers and he he feels a lot of regret. And so he's sort of there to explore that part of life. Uh, but mm-hmm. what about you? Are there any that, that really came into your mind? Yeah, I agree. It's more difficult to think about. And, and it, I really loved Anouk's point, actually, that maybe it feels like there's a dearth of grandparents in English language literature from America and from the UK, partially because people are much more separate from their grandparents. And and so maybe the relationship is quite different when it's when it's much more likely that somebody is going to live with their grandparents. And actually, interestingly, the two grandparents that I was thinking of that have a slightly different role are both basically novels about immigrant families in America. So um, there's La Inca in The Brief and Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow, and she she's kind of this um this like matriarch that shows Oscar Wow a slightly different way of being in the world and and is a, and is this familial connection that that he grows to know and love and and equally in um, Jeffrey Eugenides Middlesex which is about a, oh, yeah. a Greek family there's there's a grandmother named Desdemona yeah it's hard though isn't it and and it actually leads me on to to my next question which is something that came up in our mini sode about pets as well which is a lot of the memorable grandparents as you say are in children's books. I thought of Roald Dahl too about Grandpa Joe. And, you know, a lot of these books depict grandparents, even if they're used for comedic effect, they're very kind of loving figures, aren't they? Um, Especially, you know, in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Grandpa Joe becomes this confidant and playmate for Charlie um, when he doesn't really have that elsewhere. So why do you think that is? Do you think there are more grandparents in children's literature? And what does that mean? I mean, initially, I'm thinking it's partly because children don't have to engage with the sadder side of aging. And maybe also partly logistically, you know, more people have grandparents when they're younger, (laughs) because grandparents die as you age. Um, I mean, my grandparents all died when I was one and under. So but yeah, I think that the child, the relationship between old age and childhood feels like a very natural balance, doesn't it? If you think of it on a seesaw and there's a kind of 
the idea, especially within capitalist society, that like you work and work and work and work and work, and then you have retirement and retirement gets to be a kind of second liberation like childhood is. You can place the elderly and the very young in a similar sphere of, of kind of playfulness and sort of they exist outside of those forces. But I also think, you know, the point that you made that we found this when we were talking about pets is a really important comparison because I do think a lot of children's literature completely neuters elderly people mm. <laughs> and kind of renders them on the same level as a family pet, I think. And I, I it's something that I find very troubling in the way that we represent the the sort of final stage of life because I don't think it does justice to the reality of what that is like and the fact that, you know, particularly in the sort of Western English speaking world, we are terrified of aging and we are terrified of the end of life. And I think precisely because a lot of us are in living in cultures that are organized around a principle of hiding away the elderly and putting them where we can't see them and we don't want to think about them. Do you know what I mean? I think that there's something in that. I think there's something in that too. And uh, just thinking about like the market, it's accepted that it's really hard to sell a novel about somebody caring for an older person because you know the perception is people don't want to read about this people don't want to face up to it and that's changing a little bit I think there's more there's been more of an embrace of like thinking about death but I think you're right that old age is is different it's not given the the kind of dignity that it should be afforded and especially because grandparents can bring so much richness. I mean, again, coming back to a passage north, that relationship, I mean, we don't get tons of it. But what we do see about that relationship between Krishan and his grandmother is that she gives him something that kind of nobody else can, you know, this, this completely different outlook on life that she has that is incredibly important for him to understand. And, And the way she understands his own family and his who he is in in his own culture. And I don't, again, I think like the other, you can swing too far in the other direction and think of people as these like dignified, wise people and like putting, putting grandparents on that kind of pedestal isn't that useful either. Like they're people too, right? And, and the ideal of course would be in literature that, that neither depicts them as neutered playmates nor wise old you know soothsayers who who have no (laughs) who have no like personality but yeah it's it's a problem it is a problem precisely and I mean imagine like the last taboo is sexuality in in one's elderly years right like no one's writing about that as far as I can tell yeah and and it's so interesting because every time something that takes older people seriously is popular there's this whole like cultural discussion about how we should make more things that take old people more seriously. And then it never really seems to happen. Like even the most exotic married gold hotel, which I know, and that's actually based on a novel as well, isn't it? I know it's not a super serious novel about being older, but it is like, it's a book and a movie that meets older people where they are and gives them full lives. And books like, you know, the unlikely pilgrimage of Harold Fry or the hundred old man who climbed out the window. I think those novels are doing good work in that, in just like giving full lives to people at all ages of their life. Yeah. Um, And some of those characters are often grandparents as well. But let's talk a little bit more about the kind of symbolism of grandparents and and what they can bring to a a narrative, because I think that the grandparent relationship is so interesting, isn't it? It's, it's sort of both parenting and not. Yeah, well, often the grandparent gets to be the more permissive permissive um, figure, don't they? Like the parent has to be the figure of authority and the grandparent can actually kind of undermine that. (laughs) Also, I think the other thing that can be fascinating and very fertile ground for bringing multi-generational characters together is that you can, you know, you can use them as a writer, you can use them as pawns to explore different tensions and I think that something that a lot of people experience is that maybe there's a complex relationship between a mother and child or a father and child but then the grandparent who is the parent of the mother or father gets to have a much more simple relationship with the offspring and then that is complicated for the parent in the middle I think that those kinds of dynamics are really really fascinating Mm, yeah and I want to talk about Olive Kittredge which I think is one of the best examples of how that Bingo. That relationship can be so complicated. Also that I think that grandparents can be 
you know, sometimes they are negative influences. And I think we have this cultural, this really rosy cultural perception of these kind of permissive, lovely people who are giving you sweets and, you know, providing a, a safe haven. And that's not always true. And sometimes that, you know, they can be very, especially if, if parents are keen to raise their children in a way that is different from the way that they were raised, the, exactly. the presence of the grandparent is, is complicated. Yeah, totally. I think also, you know, you can, the grandparent can also be a figure that brings a totally different way of being into the world of their family because they can be connected to a different century almost, right? Like yeah, depending yeah. on the the age gaps between parents and their own children, you can end up having a, in three generations, you can straddle an enormous amount of time. And that in itself is fascinating. I mean, my father was born in 1931 and one of his grand, the most recent grandchild to be born is only 17 now. <laughs> Yeah, that's amazing. And, yeah. and also not my child, like, FYI. <laughs> yeah, I think that was clear. Um, <laughs> but maybe not, maybe not. And that sense of having lived through history, but also family history, so important. Yeah. So important to understand our families and grandparents can give that. Okay, let's talk about our recommended books about grandparents. What's yours, Octavia? Mine, well, mine is actually, I'm glad we're getting to it because this is a book that looks at being a grand, grandparent. Um, it's called The House of the Spirits or La Casa de los Espíritus by the Chilean author Isabel Allende, which I read in Spanish a long time ago, but you can find excellent translations, I have no doubt. Um, and it's always really stayed with me. It was Allende's debut novel, um, which she started writing, I think in 86, when she heard that her 100-year-old grandfather was dying. And the genesis of the novel was the letter that she began writing to him in the moment that she heard he was dying. Um, and it tells the story of the Trueba family spanning four generations, and it uses the time span to trace the kind of various political and post-colonial upheavals happening in Chile. And some of the characters are clairvoyant or telekinetic, so there's magical realism in there, but it's mainly narrated by Esteban Trueba and his granddaughter Alba. And he is a complex, violent guy. He's got a difficult relationship with his daughter, but he is able to love his granddaughter Alba in a really genuine way. And the book is kind of about this family through him. Um, mm -hmm. And it's fabulous. That sounds great. And it, it makes me think again of Latin American literature that is about generations, especially features a lot of grandparents, like 100 Years of Solitude is so much about the family line and how they relate to each other as well. Um, right. And again, these are cultures where families are not separated out by age. These are mm -hmm. cultures where the family has, but the unit remains together and everyone's responsibilities to each other continue, ideally. Yeah. So I think the lesson here is we just need to read fewer books in English written by American and British writers. A hundred percent. Ain't that always the way? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and also that we need to incorporate the elderly into our lives more. In our I mean, culture. you know, I'm here for that. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about, as I said, Olive in Olive Kittredge and Olive Again, uh, which are both books by Elizabeth Strout. And as I was saying, we tend to have a very fluffy view of grandparents as these enablers and very loving and able to kind of come in and play some games with the children and then leave. But these two books by Elizabeth Strout really show just how difficult this relationship can be, especially between grandparents and their adult children, and especially if they have very strong views about how children should be raised and how they raise their own children. And Olive is, I mean, Olive is this wonderful character. If, if you don't know her, she's stubborn, she's taciturn, she, she can be very funny, she can be very loving, but withhold that love. You know, she's a complicated woman in every way. And she completely disapproves of her son, Christopher's wife, Anne. And she's also very offended, basically, that they are not raising their children in the way that she raised Christopher. Um, and she's, uh, you know, she she isn't able to articulate this, but you see how it feels like an insult to her um, when they're when they're much more particular about what the kids eat and things like that. But, you know, that sounds very serious. But I think what Strat is so good at doing is making these interactions both very poignant and sometimes very sad, but also really funny. And there are some great chapters in the book about either Christopher and Anne coming to visit Olive or Olive going to visit them in New York City and just all of these things that happen that it's just like it just goes so wrong. Um, there's this great scene where Anne is, is breastfeeding and Olive can see her nipple and it's just like 
so disdaining of the fact <laughs> that that Anne is just openly breastfeeding with her nipple showing and it, it goes on and on. And I think this is such a nuanced portrait of an older person as well, especially in Olive Again, that I that I really appreciated. So read those books if you haven't. Yeah, I second that totally. And yeah, more of that. More books that focus on characters like Olive. I'm here for them. Yeah, so we're too. all ending up there. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if, if we're lucky, we will become old. So yes. we, we should be thinking about it more. Should I get off my soapbox now? <laughs> <laughs> never, never. Stay on it. Plitt back here with Octavia Bright and Anuk Arod Pragasam to give our book recommendations. So Octavia, would you like to give yours first, please? I would love to. So mine is a novel called Milk Fed by Melissa Broder. So listeners to the show will know that I was rapturous over her first novel, The Pisces. Um, and when Carmen Maria Machado recommended Milk Fed on the show when we interviewed her last year, I knew that I was going to love it. And I did. <laughs> but like everything Broda writes, it's it's so witty and biting, but it's I think at its heart, it's acutely observed social satire, really. But beyond that, she is always, always plumbing the depths of our darker impulses and particularly our compulsions. She's a real kind of gifted writer of addiction and compulsive behavior. Um, I will say that this book comes with a bit of a trigger warning for disordered eating. So if you have a history of, of eating disorder, then I would approach it with caution. Though I will also say that I think its mission is to get deep into what liberation from that kind of intense restriction in diet and elsewhere in life might look like. So, you know, see how you feel. The plot is basically about a 24-year-old woman named Rachel uh, who works at a talent agency in LA. She's Jewish, but she's lapsed and she obsessively restricts her diet and she works in this incredibly vacuous environment where thin is everything. And one day at her favorite frozen yogurt shop, she meets a woman called Miriam, who is a young Orthodox Jewish lady. And um, she started working there. And Miriam is fat and she's comfortable in her own skin and she has appetites that she uh, welcomes in herself. And Rachel finds herself really powerfully attracted to Miriam. And the book is kind of goes from there. And it's all about appetites, appetites for food, appetites for sex, appetites also for God and for spirituality. And it's it's just brilliant. It's so good on the kind of vacuous heart of late capitalism and the spiritual emptiness and the kind of spiritual hunger that many of us live alongside. Um, and it's also kind of interested in the particular trauma that's passed down through the lines of, of women, of female dysfunction around food and around attractiveness and beauty and actually the heavy cost that these lies about what a person needs to be, um, you know, fall on people. And the cost of denying ourselves, I guess, nourishment in general, nourishment from food, but nourishment from relationships, nourishment from, you know, if there is a, a life beyond the one that we know about. And also what it really means to be free in yourself, you know, free to enjoy your appetite without fear. And also Broda writes sex like no one else. And this book is no exception. So yeah, I would say read it. Great. I still need to read the Pisces. You've been talking about it for so long. I've been um, talking about it for like five years. Yeah. But you, <laughs> you really need to get into it. Um, but no, that sounds wonderful too. Anuk, could we have your book recommendation, please? I wanted to recommend a book that in English has been translated as a book of memories. It's by a Hungarian writer called Peter Nadash, and it was published um, originally in 1986, and it was translated into English in 1997 by... Ivan Sanders and Imre Goldstein. It, it's a long book, but I don't think any other book has been as, as important to me, uh, maybe just a couple of others. It has, it has three different narratives and it does involve, it is in some ways, there are moments where, where you need to kind of plow through. There are moments that, that get long or tiring, but I've never read a book that is so 
consistently illuminating about what it means to be embodied. And the main narrative of the novel is is this kind of three-way relationship between uh, two two men who are who are lovers and and a woman who is in love with one of the men. It takes place in uh, Berlin before the wall falls. And what, what's really remarkable about the book is the attention to body language, to posture, to gait, to gaze, to pulse, to hunger, to the physical space that a character is inhabiting, to the space between speakers in a scene, to the way um, gazers move uh, past each other, beyond each other, in front of each other, backwards, uh, over the course of an interaction. It has these really long scenes that uh, that describe the interaction between people at specific moments. And you feel like when you read those scenes, you feel like there are no other scenes, or that, that two other two people never 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 talked to each other or never were never next <laughs> to each other until till this moment now. And and the and the the meticulousness with which all of these things, the space between bodies, um, the, the, the difference between um, where one person has come from and where another person has come from and the moods therein, described so meticulously by paying attention to the minutiae of the, of the body in a way that almost makes um, the attribution of thoughts and desires to a character which, which is something you know that we all that, that almost every, every novel does. He felt this way. She thought that that almost makes these kinds of attributions seem superfluous because there is such a fine-grained um, differentiation of different modes of being in different moments that comes from his description of the body that mm. it, you, one feels that one doesn't even need to enter the thoughts uh, of a character. So, so this is the book that I'd recommend. It's really really beautiful and um it's called a book of memories by peter nadash oh it sounds phenomenal yeah that sounds amazing and i don't think i've heard of that so i thank you for introducing me to that it sounds so wonderful and yeah. i again i love i love the way you described it i would read a novel of you describing that well, my recommendation in comparison is a bit of a light confection. I'm not sure it's a, a serious philosophical tome by any means. But I think this is a book I'm really glad that I read. I wanted something light. I wanted some fun summer reading. I wanted something that was really funny. And it it ticked all the boxes, basically. I've just finished listening to the audiobook of Standard Deviation by Catherine Heine. If you, as I say, are looking for a contemporary astutely observed novel about relationships that is also very funny. I would really recommend this. It's a novel about Audra and Graham. Uh, they're a couple living in New York. They've been married for some years. They're also raising an autistic child named Matthew. And this is really a novel about a long marriage. So what happens after the romance fades? What happens when you hit some bumps um, and you have to face life's trials together? And also what happens if Graham's ex-wife, who he left for Audra, enters the picture. And on top of that, Graham and Audra are just two very different people, which is the source of a lot of the comedy in the book. Um, they're a number of years apart in age. Graham is, can be quite taciturn, very reserved. Audra will make conversation with literally anyone. And they have this constant <laughs> influx of house guests in all of these really funny scenarios where you know their Thanksgiving meal is like, all of these waste and strays that Audra has kind of picked up and invited over to their house and Graham's kind of grumbling about this and, you know, the the doorman ends up staying with them for months and months and months. They go on this like sea journey and she makes friends with the captain named Salty and she decides to buy his wife a handbag. Like she's just, <laughs> she's wonderful. She's a wonderful creation. Um, all the characters are so well drawn, but Audra especially is just this brilliant character. And I really love the way that she was read by um, Cassandra Campbell, who narrated this. So the definition of a fun summary novel, great read, great listen. I would recommend it. That's all the time we have for today. 
Thanks to Anouk Arud-Bragazam and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you listen and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram at LitFriction. You can also get in touch with us by email litfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please do rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and it helps us reach new listeners. We'll be back soon with another mini-sode. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction. <laughs>